Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Laura Portwood Stacer about developmental editing and why you might need to hire a developmental editor for your project. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thanks for having me. I am so glad that you're here and that you are back for a second episode. For listeners who don't know, we have taped one episode with Dr. Portwood Stacer about her book, The Book Proposal Book, which you can also find here on The Academic Life. But for listeners who haven't heard that one or who aren't going to pause and run off and listen to it now, Laura, will you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So I am... um... Uh, a developmental editor and publishing consultant for academic authors, which basically is a long way of saying that I help people get their books published. Um, I run my own business where I offer um, online programs and workshops, and I have a weekly newsletter. And of course, as you mentioned, I published the book proposal book um, with Princeton University Press, and that is a guide to getting your academic book published, whether it's your first book or your fourth book or your 10th. And can you tell us a bit about your own journey through higher ed? Sure. I um, went to grad school in the early 2000s. I got a PhD in communication in 2010. Then I taught um, as a visiting assistant professor for a few years, and I also worked at a scholarly journal editing the book review section and the commentary essays section. And I really enjoyed that editing work and working with authors one-on-one and getting their work ready for publication and really seeing the results and seeing how um, fulfilling people found that process. So I transitioned out of teaching at the university into running my own freelance editing business where I could continue to work with authors one-on-one in a bit different um, context. Uh, So in the early years of my business, I was helping people with their book manuscripts for the most part, um, and sort of getting them ready for publication. And as people were navigating the publishing process, I was sort of by their side, assisting them, giving them advice. And I realized that that was another way that I could really help authors achieve their goals. So for the past few years, I've really been focusing on the book proposal and the process of navigating the publishing process and guiding people through that. 
We like to unpack the hidden curriculum. So especially for listeners who haven't heard the book proposal episode, I know we're referring to book proposals, but could you give a nuts and bolts of what we mean by a book proposal? So a book proposal is, um, it's a tool. It's essentially a, a document that you're going to use to achieve something. So it's a, it's a bit different than like a piece of research writing. Um, and it's, it's a document that you prepare to submit to a publisher to make the case that they should invest in your book project um, and bring it to the readers that you're helping to reach, hoping to reach with it. Um, so it's a very specific kind of academic writing to write a book proposal for a scholarly book. Um, and the, as you alluded to, the norms of it are not well understood by people outside of the publishing world, which includes almost all academic writers. So um, that's why it's sort of been my mission to demystify it and, and um, help people understand that it doesn't have to be that hard once you understand what... Um, the expectations are around it. And then the book proposal goes to an acquisitions editor. Correct. Yeah. So a book proposal will get submitted to um, the person at the publisher who reviews those things. That's the acquisitions editor. Um, And then they will decide whether the project seems like a possible fit for that publisher's you know, whole publishing program. Um, and if it does, then they may take it to other members of the press, uh, like marketing people, um, sales staff, other editors on staff there um, to confer over whether the book seems like a good investment. Um, and then they'll also solicit peer reviews, um, which I'm sure many uh, readers are familiar with that kind of process, or many of your listeners are familiar with that process, um, whether through a book publisher or journal publishing. Um, and then, you know, once the peer reviews come back, the acquisitions editor is still the person who's sort of shepherding the project along, um, figuring out, okay, what do the peer reviews say? Does this book have a future at our press? Um, do I want to take this to the press's editorial board for approval and possibly a contract? Um, so yeah, the acquisitions editor is really your contact person if you're the author um, at the publisher. And one of the things we wanted to do today was demystify the difference between an acquisitions editor and a developmental editor. And before you wrote the book proposal book, you had your own experience of sending a book out and working your way through this process. Can you tell us about what it was like when you were the one working with an acquisitions editor and you were the one submitting your very first book? Yeah, wow. <laughs> Taking me back to that. Um, yeah, so I uh, published my first book based on my dissertation. Um, and my first contact actually was a series editor. Um, and so that might be helpful to talk about the difference between a series editor and an acquisitions editor. So, yes, please. Yeah, so um, within a publisher, within their um, you know, publishing program, you know, all the books that they publish, they may have specific series that are united around certain themes or topics or um, theoretical frameworks or methodological approaches. You know, they, they might be that have different kinds of um, themes for the series. Um, and my dissertation was a study of um, lifestyle politics among anarchist activists. So basically how they sort of live their political ideals in their, 
you know, the very fine detailed practices of their everyday lives. Um, and so there was a series on contemporary anarchist studies that um, I actually knew one of the series editors for because I had met him in the course of my research. And so I thought that would be a really like just apt home for this dissertation to book project. So I reached out to him to say, does this seem like the kind of thing that your uh, series would be interested in? He said, yes. So then I had to write the proposal up um, and uh, submit it so that he could forward it not just to the other series editors, but to the acquisitions editor, which is the person who works at the publisher. So a series editor is often an academic, um, somebody who's like very well established in the particular field that they work in. They know other scholars, they can kind of recruit authors to the series. Um, the acquisitions editor works at the publisher. They may or may not have an academic background. They will have a publishing background. Um, so, you know, then the proposal got forwarded on to that person and then they did sort of the, you know, the process of taking it through the acquisitions process at the publisher. Um, so I don't, does that answer your question? It does. It, it, uh, so was there a point in that process where you started realizing that developmental editors could serve a real role to sort of walk alongside what an acquisitions editor does? Oh, yeah. So this is a great question because I actually didn't. Um, <laughs> I did not use a developmental editor for my first book. Um, I I don't know if I knew that there was that kind of assistance available. Um, I just kind of fought through it on my own. Um, but I would say, you know, in the couple of years following publication of my first book, I started to hear about other people I knew who had um, taken up work as, you know, freelance developmental editors. Um, and I think when people go through the um, publishing process with their books, especially for first books, um, they have this idea that the editor is like the person who's going to read their work, tell them whether it's good enough, um, give them the suggestions to make it good enough, um, you know, really be, uh, I don't want to say a gatekeeper, even though people do think of acquisitions editors that way, but um, almost like a standards bearer or something. Um, and that is not really the case. That's not really how it tends to work. Um, mostly because acquisitions editors have a lot of duties in their job description. Um, a lot to do with that sort of project management role of like you know pulling the project through the publisher and making sure it hits all the the steps it needs to hit including peer review which is kind of that um you know ensuring of a certain standard but um it's pretty rare that an acquisitions editor has the time to invest in reading a manuscript cover to cover and giving really detailed feedback on it um or even more general feedback on it. I mean, that does happen. And if that happens to you as an author, you're fortunate. Um, but I think authors um, maybe expect or assume that they're going to get more hands-on, um, like actual manuscript editing from the editor at the publisher than they end up getting. And so that is kind of the role that the, the developmental editor, who is usually a freelancer, um, steps in to fill 
they're the person who really works with the manuscript um, and you know the words that are on the page and the the ideas that are in your head to make sure that those all come together um, to become the book that you want to put out. And the developmental editor can take the feedback that your acquisitions editor and your peer review gave you and help you know what to do with it. Being told what to do and knowing what to do with it or how to do it are different animals. Yes, absolutely. And I always talk about this as being a a key difference between a developmental editor and a peer reviewer. Um, Because I think a lot of people think, oh, I have experience with peer review. I've given feedback. Uh, before. That means I could do developmental editing. Um, But they really are two different skills. There's, you know, diagnosing an issue um, or knowing something's not quite right here, but I'm not sure what it is, um, which is sometimes what peer reviewers end up doing. Whereas a developmental editor not only needs to be able to diagnose the issue, but like you said, tell you how to fix it. Um, And that might not be... um, super prescriptive. They might not say you have to do this with this manuscript in order to make it publishable, but they will give you guidance on what you could do. What are your options? What are the ways we could fix this issue if you if you agree that it is an issue with the manuscript? Um, so yeah, their job is really to help you facilitate revision, um, not to stymie it or to put more obstacles in your way. And it's not to do it for you because that's really a ghostwriter or a book doctor, isn't it? Uh, so the, I mean, the lines here can get a little blurry. Um, you know, I would say ghostwriting where, um, in my understanding, that sort of, you might dictate your ideas to somebody, um, or give them a collection of like random things you've written and they would put it together into a book manuscript. I would say that that is usually not seen as ethically appropriate for scholarly writing. Um, that's much more common in like trade nonfiction. Um, but there is some degree of execution that a developmental editor might do, um, which I think would fall short of writing things for you. Um, but they might be able to help you structure things, you know, move things around, put the words in the order that makes more sense than the way you originally had them. Um, they might be able to help you um, figure out where transitions should come. They could even kind of draft transitional type language for you. That's not so much, you know, the content of your research, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think it can be a fine line, you know, between, between doing it for you and facilitating your doing it. Um, and different developmental editors will have different um, levels of comfort with how much they're willing to do. Let's talk about fit in finding your developmental editor. So listeners need to know how to find one, and then they need to know if the one that they found really represents how all of the developmental editors work or just how that one works? And if so, is that the one you should be working with? Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. So let's, let's take it like two parts. So um, how to find somebody. Um, I always say the best way to find a developmental editor is word of mouth um, because that's like a built-in recommendation. So if you, you know, talk to somebody who's heard of another editor or who better yet has worked with another editor um, and can tell you their name and, and their style, that's, a, I think, a great way to figure out, you know, at least an initial list of who might be a possibility for you to work with. Um, there's not really like a central database of 
academic developmental editors, unfortunately. Um, you know, there are a few uh, editing groups like um, the Editorial Freelancers Association, um, ACES, which is a Copy Editors Association, um, Editors Canada. There's um, one that's based in the UK that the name is escaping me right now. But, um, and so you could search those databases to see, like, does anyone list developmental editing in their profile? But I think you're better off going with word of mouth recommendations from colleagues. Um, and if you're already working with a publisher, your publisher may have some recommendations to give you as well. Um, but what once you find somebody, um, you have like their name, um, you can look into what they offer, you know, hopefully they have a website or something that gives you some information about them, um, find out what services they provide, um, what their experience is, what their qualifications are. And, and the thing that you're kind of getting at in the second question um, is that there's no one right answer to what a developmental editor should look like or should be able to do or um, the experience they should have. There's many different paths that people take into this work. So um, just because you've heard of one editor who does things a particular way or has a particular um, credential, that doesn't mean that you have to work with that editor or that type of editor. So let's talk about um, fit. If they don't seem to be respecting you, um, what do you do? And how do you sort of walk the fine line of you're a bundle of nerves and you're nervous about letting this person see uh, what you've written. Um, and how do you, how do you walk that line of, is it me? Am I just really worried or is this person really not respecting where I'm coming from? Yeah. Yeah. So, so another thing I guess I, I should have mentioned is, you know, when you're checking out an editor, um, you know, maybe you can glean some things about them from their website, but then you'll probably want to make some kind of contact with them. Um, and that's a great opportunity to assess their vibe, you know, for lack of a better word, um, or their personality um, to see whether you fit with them or not. And I think it's important for authors to understand that the fit is not necessarily going to be right with every editor, and that it's not you if you don't fit with somebody. It's you know, both of you, and it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just, you know, maybe your styles don't mesh. Maybe this is not the person you're looking for. Um, and so I would say, I think we as editors can forget how intimidating it can be to be an author who's putting themselves out there, you know, maybe for the very first time sort of admitting that they need help with a manuscript that can be really difficult emotionally for some people. Um, and, and editor as editors, we're so used to working with authors that we might forget those initial feelings that can come with reaching out to an editor. So, um, so in some sense, I would say, you know, Remember that the editor talks to authors all day, and so it's not just you. Um, and 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 they're not probably not trying to be intimidating to you. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, this is somebody that you will be paying a significant amount of money to to hopefully improve your writing experience and your publishing experience. So it should feel like a good experience. Um, you want them to respect you, to treat you as the expert on your subject matter. Um, 
you know, there may be things you don't know about writing or publishing, but you are still, you know, a very accomplished person. So, so not that you would not deserve to be treated with respect if you were not an accomplished person, but um, you should feel that you are coming into this as an equal um, and, and entering into a partnership with somebody who respects you as an equal. Um, and if that is not the feeling you're getting, um, you know, maybe the editor's just having an off day, um, but I still would say that's probably not somebody that you want to work with or need to work with. There are lots and lots of editors out there. So um, you can always find somebody else if you're not feeling the vibe. A lot of people who are hiring a developmental editor are trying to level up. They, they realize they want to get their writing better. And for academics, every time we've leveled up, we've had sort of a some level of panic attack about it. Like there's imposter syndrome that sets in. There's what am, what am I setting myself up for? Can I really do this? Do I want to do this? And inviting someone into a messy part of ourselves because that's part of leveling up. It's admitting where your weaknesses are or letting someone else point out where they are. And perhaps you didn't notice that was your area before. You're like, no, no, my footnotes are perfect. That's my best skill. And the development editor has to say, well, if this is going to a, you know, a more popular press, we need to really look at how dense your footnotes are. Um, and so can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think the really important thing um, for authors to remember, and hopefully editors are also remembering this, is that getting help with your writing is not a judgment on you as a person. Um, and anything your editor says about your manuscript should be about the manuscript, not about you. Um, and not even about your abilities. It's just about what showed up on the page that they were able to read. Um, and so they should be focused on helping you bring out, you know, the best in yourself and the best of your abilities. Um, and, and I think, I hope that anyone who is working as a developmental editor, has that kind of um, like optimistic feeling about authors that they can be um, helped and the writing can be improved and the text can, you know, meet those leveled up goals that an author might have or else, you know, why would we be doing this? Um, so while it might feel scary to kind of confront those anxieties, um, uh, you know, hopefully working with the editor brings you a greater sense of confidence that, okay, you, we've collaborated on this thing. Um, They've, you know, maybe pointed out the weaknesses, but also helped me fix the weaknesses. So by the time we're done working together, I can feel really good about this thing that I'm taking either to a publisher or if it's already accepted by a publisher that I'm taking now out to those readers that might be really scary to show this work to. Another part of the hidden curriculum is that the kind of writing you get taught to do as a grad student is largely applicable to writing for grad school requirements. Once you want to show your work to another audience, whether it's a blog post that you want to write or a more formal journal article that you want to write, wherever you're going to take it outside the academy, it's a different set of writing standards. And there's often an assumption among academics that, well, we can just figure it out. Mm -hmm. But that's that's not really logical. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think, you know, I think a lot of people do kind of 
figure it out in the sense that maybe there is some level of like trial and error involved. Like you put it out there, you might receive some rejections on it. You might receive some criticism on it. Um, and then you try to learn from that and then you try again. Um, and that's, that's fine. I think that's like part of the process of like growing and, and as you said, leveling up. Um, but, uh, ideally a developmental editor sort of helps you skip a few steps um, and is sort of like in the safe space of that relationship um, is is letting you do the trial and error, you know, within that kind of private space um, so that then, you know, when you are ready to go public with it, you, you feel even better about it. And you can admit to your developmental editor what's happening when you're trying to figure certain things out on your own so they can see maybe where you would benefit from a particular writing text to take a look at. Yeah, I mean, often often developmental editors are able to make those kinds of recommendations. Um, I mean, I do want to differentiate between a d- developmental editor and a writing coach. Um, yes, please. Yeah, because those are two different roles, and and the skill set is different for those two things. So I'm not, you know, some people will do both, but if you're looking for a developmental editor, um, you know, some will really focus on you know, what's on the page, they'll be looking at the big picture, um, sort of aspects of your writing, like um, your argument, your argumentation, the evidence you use to support the argument, um, the structure, the way you shape the narrative of the manuscript, um, the style, the sort of the voice you speak in and address the reader with. Um, and so, so some editors will, you know, stay pretty focused on those issues. They'll identify what is happening in your text and then tell you, here's how we change that to, you know, better connect with your readers. Um, Some might be, you know, lean more toward the coaching where they're not just working with that text, but working with you as the writer and saying, okay, you seem to have this recurring issue. um, Or maybe this issue that's showing up on the page is actually due to something else going on, like a, a mindset issue or, um, a writing practice issue or, you know, something that's, slightly separate from like the text itself. Um, and so a coach might be able to help you work through whatever that sort of outside issue is to help the writing show up better on the page. Um, and maybe would be able to point you to other resources as well. So your developmental editor is going to focus on argument, evidence, structure, and style. Yeah. I mean, those are kind of the four pillars that I've kind of identified as being like my main concern when I'm doing developmental editing. I mean, I think different people might, break down developmental editing differently, but that's, that's the way I've found most useful for understanding academic manuscripts. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com. 
factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Once you've hired a developmental editor, do you tell your acquisitions editor? Yeah. So this is a great question because I think people feel maybe a sense of worry or shame about getting help from a developmental editor. Um, And I don't think that's unreasonable because I do think there might be a little bit of prejudice within academia itself from um, snobs, (laughs) for lack of a better word, um, who think you should be able to just write well on your own and shouldn't need any help. Um, But within publishing, developmental editing is not at all looked down upon. Um, It's highly encouraged. It's the kind of thing that a publisher, if they had the resources, would invest in for all of their authors um, and would be able to give that kind of hands-on feedback. Maybe the acquisitions editor themselves would be able to do it. Um, But of course, they are often not able to do it because of time constraints, you know, whatever other reasons. So if you are taking the initiative to work with a developmental editor, your publisher will look upon that kindly, I think, um, and and want to help you get through that process so that your book, you know, turns out the best it can be. That's what your publisher wants is a good book. They don't necessarily care how you get there. <laughs> so if you are able to get help for it, um, they will um, be encouraging of that. And they may even be able to recommend some developmental editors that they have worked with before, or their authors have worked with before. Um, you know, I've worked with clients where, you know, I've written up my editorial assessment of their manuscript. So that's like a letter that I would write them that would say, here's what I see in this manuscript. And here's what I think you can do to this manuscript to revise it. So it's not actually the revisions yet. It's a plan, really a revision plan. Um, And so I've worked with clients that will take that revision plan to their publisher, to their acquisitions editor and say, well, this is what my developmental editor thinks I should do. What do you think? And then they can get input from the acquisitions editor. You know, in the case, um, one case where my client did that, the acquisitions editor was very supportive and said, this is exactly what I would have said. Um, Good. This sounds like a good plan. Um, How much time do you need to to revise it, you know, and, and she ended up getting a little bit of an extension um, to, to do that work, that developmental work that we had planned to do together. So her publisher was extremely supportive of it. Um, and the book turned out, you know, really great and won awards. And, and we were both really, really proud of the work that we did on it. How soon do you start looking for a developmental editor? I would start looking as soon as you know you might want one so that you have a list of names in mind um, that gives you time to vet them, you know, check out their website, uh, talk to people who have worked with them if you can find them. Um, And you can reach out really at any point um, because different editors have different timelines. You know, some who are in high demand may book up several months in advance. So it never hurts to reach out, say, you know, here's the kind of timeline I'm working with. I am thinking of working with a developmental editor or, you know, better yet, I would really like to work with you or hear about your process. Um, and then you can find out from them, okay, when do they need you to get back in touch? When do they need to receive the manuscript, you know, in order to work with your timeline? Um, but that's not something you can really know usually from the outside. So it is something you'll need to find out from the editor themselves. So that's why I think reaching out early is always good. And then they can tell you, you know, when to get back in touch. You mentioned earlier that it's a significant time and financial investment to properly work with your developmental editor. Do you want to give listeners a sense um, 
with real numbers of what that might mean. Yes. Yeah. So, so this is sort of a corollary to the previous question, which is, you know, it's never too early, but it is sometimes too late. Um, you know, I've had people reach out to me saying, oh, my um, manuscript is due in three weeks. And that's just entirely impossible for a developmental editor to accommodate usually. Um, because not only will they need, you know, probably a few weeks, if we're talking about a book manuscript, to read your manuscript, um, they may already be booked with other clients. And then you're going to need time to process those comments um, and edits and revisions that they are recommending. Um, and that could take months. Um, so, you know, I think you should probably allow you know, a few months at least for the developmental editing process. And it's going to depend on how significant the revisions that they are recommending are um, and how long it will take you to undertake them. So, um, you know, at least a couple months, I would factor in maybe even up to a year, you know, if we're talking about a deep revision of a full book manuscript. As far as the costs, um, those really vary widely um, because, you know, they're all, you know, independent service providers. So they all set their own rates um, and some charge by the hour, some charge by the project, some charge by the word or the page. Um, so it's hard to give a definitive answer as to how much it's going to cost you. Um, but for a ballpark um, you know, if you're looking for a developmental assessment, which is, you know, just kind of a, a letter writing up what the issues with your text are and, um, you know, the directions you could go with the manuscript, I would expect to pay at least $1,000 for that. Um, this is for a book manuscript, you know, a journal, you know, a shorter document that's you're always going to be, you know, talking lower numbers. But for a book manuscript, I would expect at least $1,000. Some editors may charge less. Um, but I, you know, I would say a thousand and maybe even on up to a couple thousand, a few thousand, um, depending on, you know, the degree of detail that you're hoping your editor will read your manuscript in and, and what kind of detail they'll be providing you with that assessment. Um, and then if you are hiring somebody to actually kind of get into your text and do some of that, um, hands-on editing on it. That's what I call it. Um, you know, where they're actually moving chunks around or putting placeholders in or coming up with new subject headings, um, or, you know, telling you which parts to cut and where you need to add more material. Um, you know, that could take several hours per chapter. Um, so if we're talking about an editor who charges, you know, a hundred dollars an hour, 150, uh, maybe even, you know, a little less than 100. Some might charge more like $75 an hour. You know, that'll be several hours per chapter. So if we're talking about a full book, you know, that could end up costing in the thousands of dollars, you know, $5,000 would not be at all unheard of for like a hands-on developmental edit of an academic book manuscript. Um, and it could be higher than that. Um, could also be lower. You know, again, people have different rates. That's something you can ask about as you're um, sort of vetting various editors and see who is the right fit for you. Um, but I think the thing that, you know, does make this uh, not accessible to everyone is, you know, these are professional skilled people who also need to make a living off of this work. So um, they do, you know, deserve to be compensated accordingly. Um, so it is not cheap, I will say that. 
And it's intellectually intensive. Yes. So hoping it could go faster or be cheaper isn't really reasonable given the amount of intensive thought you're asking your developmental editor to truly devote to your project. Yes. Really pay attention to it and really make that their sole mission to deeply understand what it is you have done and how close that is to what you're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of a, you get what you pay for kind of situation. Um, you know, if you want someone to do kind of a cursory read and give you sort of boilerplate advice that kind of applies to any book, uh, manuscripts, then yeah, maybe you can get that a bit cheaper. Um, but, but hopefully as you said, you know, your editor is really engaging with the text. You know, I take on a book manuscript as if it's my own. I feel all the emotions about it and all the anxieties um, when I'm, you know, reading it, or I should say when I did do that work, because I've kind of transitioned away from that. But um, so, so yeah, it, it's not just a, well, I can be in and out in a couple of hours. It's a significant investment of time and thought and, um, and hopefully has significant payoffs for the person who's investing in that work. Let's talk about what a developmental editor is not, such as a proofreader or a indexer. Yeah. So yeah, there's all kinds of professionals who can help you with your manuscript and you may want to hire all of them or, you know, kind of decide who is going to give you the most uh, bang for your buck. Um, So a developmental editor, you know, is working with the manuscript, but at a a preliminary stage, you know, you're getting the manuscript to where it's going to be when it goes into production and goes out to readers. Um, And again, focusing on big picture kinds of things that could even be pretty early on in the writing and drafting process. Um, I would say they are, you know, if we're talking about all the different kinds of people who might touch a manuscript, a developmental editor would be, you know, in the early phases of it relative to, say, a copy editor who is not necessarily concerned with the ideas and the big picture stuff as much as how things are showing up on the page, um, how the text is conforming to a particular style guide that a publisher might have, um, or to, you know, various grammar guidelines um, and things like capitalization and pagination and all that kind of stuff. Um, then a, a proofreader would be kind of even the next level. So a proofreader technically is somebody who deals with the typeset proofs. So not the manuscript, you know, in your Word document, but after it has, it has been set by the press, it's ready to like go into printing. The proofreader is kind of the last person who looks at it and makes sure that everything is the way it should be. Um, and then, you know, an indexer is an entirely different thing. That's a person who would come through um, after the, the proofs have been typeset and all the page numbers have been assigned to all the content within the book. And then they would go through and, you know, I think people probably know what an index is, but it's like a conceptual map of the book that readers can then access the, you know, the different concepts and terms um, from the back of the book. So the indexer would kind of create that map um, and then, uh, you know, have the um, assign the page numbers. I know there's like specialized language that indexers use that I'm probably not using it here, but um, you know, that's also a very specific um, skill and it requires a lot of training um, to do it really, you know, at the, at the top professional level. Um, 
so yeah, so so all of those people can help. You might decide you want to work with all all of those kinds of professionals. You know, usually a copy editor is provided by a publisher, uh, but a developmental editor, a professional proofreader, and a professional indexer are kind of your own responsibility as the author for the most part. You were mentioning earlier that it's almost never too early to start thinking about if you want a developmental editor and to start asking for references and referrals for that. Um, but would you bring them in when you're still at the dissertation stage? How early is too early? Yeah, so this is a great question um, because different developmental editors have different stages when they are comfortable entering the process. Um, you know, when I was working as a developmental editor, I was very willing to work with somebody who had just finished their dissertation um, because that is often a sticking point for people is, well, I have a dissertation. I want to publish a book. I have no idea what to do with the material that's in my dissertation in order to make it into a book. Um, so that is something that some developmental editors can help with. They can read the dissertation, see all the raw material that's there, and then kind of give you your options. Well, here's how we could rearrange this material or structure it to make it marketable as a book, to make it palatable to readers. Um, so, so absolutely, that is a stage you can work with a developmental editor. Now, some people choose to wait and kind of, you know, get to a book manuscript on their own um, or maybe just rely on sort of feedback from colleagues or their advisors, um, then get to a, a book manuscript and then, you know, at a little bit later stage in the drafting, then spend the money on a developmental editor. Um, so some people might do that, you know, before they send it to a publisher to get peer reviewed um, some people wait until after it's been through peer review and they think, you know, the best time to invest in the developmental editor is at the very last stage of drafting. So I can make this the best it can be before it goes out to those final readers, um, like the, the public, you know, who is going to read it. Um, so there's not really a wrong time. It's just kind of what you need as an author. And then, you know, some developmental editors have a have different preferences as to when they prefer to work with a manuscript. So you can talk to people that you might be interested in working with. Um, if there's somebody you have your heart set on working with for whatever reason, and they only will work at a particular point, then maybe you go with that point. You know, they're experienced working with authors. You can ask them why that point is the best you know, why they prefer that point that might convince you. Um, or you might find out, well, then that person is not a fit for you if they can't work with you at the stage when you really feel you need the help. Um, and I, I'm sure you can find somebody else who will be able to work with you at the stage that you're looking for. If you hire a developmental editor early on, I've just finished my dissertation. I really want to reshape this so that I can uh, get it to an acquisitions editor because I've heard they won't look at a mildly revised dissertation. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what I need to do in order to get it in front of them. And so you work with them and you, you get it through acquisitions and you know, you're, you're off to the races. Now it's two years later and you are looking at your final draft before it's, you know, going to be set in type and on bookshelves. Can you circle back to your developmental editor and say, do you remember me from two years ago? I would love to pay you to do a what you can do in the six months I have left. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, you never know if they're available or, you know, if their business has shifted or what, but it, it does not hurt at all to get back in touch. And I think speaking for myself, I always love hearing back from authors because sometimes they just kind of disappear after I work with them. And I'm like, did the book ever get published? What happened? Um, so, 
I think it's great to circle back. Um, and if they don't happen to be available or aren't able to work with you, they they know your work as well as anyone. So they may be able to recommend a really good fit for you. Let's talk about funds that for hiring someone who does this work. Mm-hmm. If you are uh, affiliated with a university or an academic institution, there may be funds you can apply for. And if you're an independent scholar, there may be grants you can apply for. Do you want to talk a little bit about trying to access? I know it's it's assisting people in finding the funds is not your, right. um, your area, but you have had many clients who've come through who have probably given you a sense of where they got funds yes. from. Yeah. So I would say in my experience, they've come from a few places. Um, you know, some people do pay out of pocket, um, and of course, that is you know only available to a privileged few who have those kinds of resources. But uh, you know the ones who have done that have viewed it as an investment in their um, future income if they are you know employed by a university press. I mean, sorry, employed by a university. Um, you know, like I had one client who was writing her second book and she wanted to go up for full professor, um, which would be a significant, you know, promotion and income bump for her. And she knew she needed that second book out and she just knew she couldn't do it on her own. She needed, you know, somebody to motivate her to get it out. Um, and so, you know, that's how she justified the cost. Um, and it, she did end up getting promoted to full and and she felt it was so well worth the investment. Um, but of course she was lucky to be able to do that, um, investment, um, the other major source of funding um, is research funds or professional development funds, you know, whatever they're called, startup funds, whatever your institution calls them. Many people use those. Um, and I don't want to speak for all developmental editors, but at least for me and many of the ones I know, we will contract directly with your university, um, which means getting set up as an independent contractor or a vendor, whatever your institution calls it. Um and submitting an invoice that then gets turned into a purchase order that then, you know, then the university cuts the check directly to us. Um, You know, that's a lot of administrative work for the editor, and it can be a lot of chasing down the payments. Um, So, you know, as anyone who works at a university knows, it can be hard to get reimbursed. It can also be hard to get paid when you're the person on the other end of that. Um, But that, that is absolutely how a lot of people, um, end up paying for the developmental editing. Um, And then I would say the other source of funds, which is probably more rare, but is a possibility is I have had clients who have negotiated for an advance from their publisher. So if they um, have had a book that is particularly marketable or attractive to the publisher, um, has some maybe crossover appeal to to wider audiences beyond academia. Some publishers, these are you know the well-funded publishers, um, will pay the author an advance on royalties, which means they cut the author a check up front before the book is submitted um, and before it's published. Um, that you know, so I have had authors who have gotten you know a couple thousand dollars from their press that they have then used to work with me to to. Um, polish their manuscript. Um, as far as outside grants, I can speak less to those. I don't, I don't have the experience with them, but I would imagine that, uh, the funds for an editor could be written into, you know, the grants that come for, you know, humanities or social science research. And some presses who are really trying to look at what 
equity and inclusion means are offering some types of grants as well for some of their authors who qualify. Correct. Yes. So again, those are kind of the well-resourced presses, um, but some of them um, do have programs. um, Many of them are to help authors who are already under contract with the press. Um, I think California, MIT, and Princeton, I believe all have those kinds of funds available for their um, contracted authors. Duke as well, I think, for first books um, by authors of color, I think. Um, So uh, yeah, then you could apply for those funds as an author and, and say that you want to work with a developmental editor and then get kind of a grant to do that. What do you wish more developmental editors knew about clients? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know. It's hard for me to say um, because I think um, they they know their clients pretty well. Usually, I think I would maybe go back to that that point we talked about earlier. That I think once you've been doing this work, or particularly maybe if you've never been in the position of submitting your own work. Um, for feedback or to a publisher, it's easy to lose sight of how hard it is, how emotionally difficult it can be, how much anxiety goes with that process. I mean, I will say, you know, I was always aware of that. And having published my first book, I was aware of it. But the process of writing the second book um, took me right back there to how scary it can be and how worried you can be about the feedback you're going to get when you send it to an editor or send it to peer reviewers. Um, so that was a great reminder to me of that, that position that many of my authors are in. Um, and, and just a reminder to like, be kind and empathetic and supportive, um, you know, because that's what people need and and you won't have a job for very long if, if you can't do that for your authors. So if it's their first book or their 40th, the nerves are never going to go away in asking for help and having someone else look at something that you know is not polished. That's why you need them to look at it. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe it's just my personality and the personality of many other people I know. Um, you know, I'm sure there are some people who don't don't have those kinds of jitters about it. But, um, I, you know, I've worked with many people who are well into their careers, full professors, um, you know, writing, you know, their fourth book or later, and they're still have the same insecurities about it. Um, so, so yeah, we're all, we're all human. What do you wish more clients knew about their developmental editors? Ah, well, I think I, you know, I, I think I, the thing people should know about everybody who works in publishing are like the labor conditions of it. Um, so when that comes to developmental editors, you know, we're often freelancers, um, meaning we're self-employed. Um, this may be our only source of income. So, you know, we've set our rates at what they are for a reason. I think a lot of editors probably could should be charging more than they are. People undersell themselves. Um, so, you know, I don't think trying to negotiate with with people on rates is uh, always the best thing to do. Um, I think it's better to negotiate on scope, um, meaning, you know, if there's a certain amount that's in your budget for this, tell the editor that so they can tell you, well, here's what I can do for that amount. You know, it might not be the full edit, but it might be we can really get your intro in great shape um, or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then I would say to be mindful of their schedule. Um, and different editors have different ways of 
dealing with this, but you know, a, a sticking point for me when I was doing mostly book manuscripts was I would try to give people like a window when they could expect me to be fully devoted to their project. You know, I have many projects in the pipeline, but I would tell you, okay, the last two weeks of July, that's when I am devoting to you. Um, and then when people would not reply or not follow through or not meet that deadline, of course, I understand they have their own, um, you know, circumstances and reasons, but then that leaves me without a source of income for those two weeks if that person didn't show up. And then it, I might not be able to put them in the schedule at a later point or at a point that works for them. So then I've, I've sacrificed the entire job. Um, and so that could be a significant blow to somebody um, who works for themselves. So I would just say, you know, be in communication about your schedule as much as you can. Ask people what their policies are about lateness um, and then and then try to understand and work with them as best as you can. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Um, I hope it will spark uh, the confidence to look for a developmental editor um, and and this kind of help if you think it would be helpful. Um, I don't think everyone needs it or wants it, and that's completely fine. Um, but I hope that um, it'll feel more accessible and practical and something that you can do. Um, and also something that you can be open about with your publisher. If, um, if you're already working with a publisher and, and feel that this kind of collaboration would enhance your publishing process. And finally, what's your favorite part of doing this work? I know you're stepping away from it, but the passion that drove you through. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same for, you know, the work I'm doing now is, is more focused on, you know, my group programs, helping people um, prepare proposals and then navigate that publishing process. And I would say it's kind of the same as it was when I was doing the developmental editing work on the book manuscripts, um, which is just like helping people achieve something that they have always wanted to do, um, that they are perfectly qualified to do, but maybe just had, um, you know, obstacles in their way that they just needed the right information or the right person or the right, um, you know, empathy or care or something to just unlock, you know, what they were trying to accomplish. Um, so, so of course it was always, you know, really, uh, fulfilling when people's books would get published and, um, I could buy a copy of them and, and they could be really proud of the book that's out in the world. Um, I think that's the thing that I struggled with, um, with my first book, you know, I revised my dissertation. I think I did a fine job. I, you know, it was published. I was pretty happy with the book, but I just, you know, like many people, I look back on it and think of all the things I could have done better, the things I wish were there that aren't there. Um, and, and I want to help people not have those kinds of regrets, I guess, you know, to feel that they really gave it their best shot. Um, so they can go out and just tell everyone about the book and re really feel that pride. And once it's out, you want them to send you a copy so you know it's really out in the world. <laughs> well, you know, I will say very few people actually send me a copy of the book. I usually pay for it myself because they've already paid me quite a bit of money. Um, but I, you know, I love it when they let me know it's coming out. Um, it's always nice to see your name in the acknowledgments. Um, and really the best, the best gift someone can give me is to tell their friends, um, tell their colleagues, um, um, so that, you know, we can keep that word of mouth going because that's that's how we um, self-employed editors keep our businesses running. 
Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Laura Portwood-Stacer, and telling us about developmental editing and why you might need one for your project. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.